Hello and welcome to Still Any Good, the podcast where we run the risk of ruining our childhoods by revisiting fondly remembered films and occasionally TV. My name's Christopher Webb, and unfortunately Rob can't be with us tonight, but with me is a very good-humoured fellow, a benevolent little chap, slightly obscene perhaps, a little bit naughty. Please say hello to Tyler Adams. Thank you for that intro, Chris. <laughs> You're like a fine wine. I'm like a fine... Oh, very neat. Very neat segue, almost. <laughs> yeah. You could have actually just let on that I was Rob because I've got a thick Kiwi accent like Rob, so people might not necessarily be able to distinguish the two of us. You all sound the same. Mm, we all sound the same. I thought that too. <laughs> so how are you? I am very good, although, um, as I said to you off camera, uh, my daughter's just tested positive for COVID, so uh, happy days. So you are more similar to Rob than we thought, because of course Rob is off because he has the good old COVID as well. Mm, he's pretty poorly by all accounts. He is sicky poorly, yeah, so we'll send our love to both of them, both to mm. Rob and to your daughter, and hope they get well very, very soon. Mm -hmm. So obviously you're in Britain, anything happening there at the moment? A bit quiet? <sighs> Got a new Prime Minister. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, and the Queen died as well. I don't know if you heard. Yeah, I heard whispers of it, yeah, mm -hmm. rumours. There's nothing on telly about it, so you have to search far and wide to find out any sort of coverage. Yeah, it's probably some very niche Google pages and that's about <laughs> it really, isn't it? So, as I said in my introduction, tonight it is TV, so it is one of our annual Tales of the Unexpected. So, for you, growing up in New Zealand, were you? did they have Tales of the Unexpected over here? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and you um, remember that growing up? I was very taken by the theme tune when I was a kid. The Ron Grainer theme is very good. Yeah, very taken by that. I think like most people, if you say Tales of the Unexpected, the first thing they think of is that woman and the theme music and the sort of lava lamp thing that's going on there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember the classic series, if you like, you know, the classic stories, because as it, I think as the mm -hmm. series went on, they moved more and more away from Roald Dahl stories and they started did. using yep. And there were American episodes as well, weren't there, as you got into the fifth series? Absolutely. I mean, even in, in the first series or the, or the second series, some of Roald Dahl stories were made overseas. The very, very first one, The Man from the South, clearly isn't filmed in East Anglia. Oh, right. OK. I'm sorry, I've not re-watched all of them, obviously. I've, re I've watched a few for the, for the purposes of this. Um, I just assumed that the first couple of series would just be purely yeah, UK. There's a few here and there, but you're right, it was mainly Roald Dahl stories for about the first two series. Yeah, with cuddly uncle Roald sat in front of a fireplace with a blanket over his knees. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Waiting for the nurse to bring in his cup of cocoa, obviously. <laughs> and we're talking about three episodes today, and two of them I've seen before. I mean, there's one mm. that I nominated, which I'm very... Well, I thought I was very familiar with it. I had false memory syndrome, which I can talk about later in terms of this episode, that, that episode. Excellent. But I'm a big fan of Roald Dahl's short stories, and I've got some... Um, the book here. Oh, he's brought props. Which is all of his collected short stories. There's one short story in particular, which I don't think they made a Tales of the Unexpected episode, which is called The Great Switcheroo, which is a short story that I remember enjoying very much when I first read it, which would have been about, I don't know, 25 years ago or whatever. And I reread it because I just had a flick through the book yesterday and reread that story. It's called The Great Switcheroo. I was appalled. I was like... <laughs> Jesus. It's basically the, the premise is two neighbours decide that they're going to sleep with each other's wives without the wives finding out. What? Yeah. At one point they discuss using chloroform. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh my God. And it, it all comes about what they do is they work out this elaborate plan where it'll be pitch black in the bedroom and they've got, oh, I won't go into detail, but the zinger at the end is that they do successfully manage to sleep with each other's wives and the guy that instigated the whole plan, his wife says the next morning, oh, 
that was the best sex I've ever had. I must be honest with you, darling. It's been crap up to this point, but you've really, <laughs> you've really changed. <laughs> For a second, I thought the switch was going to be that the wives had planned the same thing at the same time, like that one foot in the grave episode. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, that would be better. Because I've got some of his his novels that I read with the kids. Have you ever read Easy O Trot? No. I know it was made into a BBC thing a little while ago. No. I mean, the whole premise of that is a man cons a woman into falling in love with him by stealing her pets. And then in the end, they get married. (laughs) (laughs) But it's for children, so it's okay. Roald Dahl was a bit of a misanthropist, wasn't he, really? Is that the right word? Mm. I don't think he liked people, really. Yeah. Yeah. He certainly doesn't like children. No. (laughs) <laughs> so that should probably then lead us quite clumsily onto the episode that you've chosen for mm. tonight, which is... Uh, it's called Taste. I think one has more fun being a wine lover in England than in any other country. And that's because London's where nearly all the great wine auctions take place. There's one almost every week of the year. And for decades, I have haunted these auctions and the tastings that go before them. As a result... The old cellar below our house contains, at this moment, over 5,000 bottles of wine. Some of it is superb. Most of it's pretty good. We drink a bottle or two every night. It doesn't seem to do us much damage. Here's a wine story I wrote when I first became fascinated by the subject. Ah, taste. So that is, um, it's quite an early one, isn't it, from the second series, about 1980? Because you obviously you very kindly invited me to join you and well Rob, and um, you asked if there was any episodes that I particularly wanted to talk about, and that that's the first one that came to mind. And I think it's just it's purely based on it's a very simple well yeah it's a pretty simple story, but it's got this towering performance by Mr. Ron Moody, um, who's chewing the scenery something rotten, isn't he? He's amazing in this. <laughs> He's so good. Everybody else plays it completely straight. And then he bursts in. He looks a bit like the Bruce Forsyth in Toast of London. <laughs> he does. He does. Because <laughs> he's, he's got this giant chin, this slightly large nose, the moustache, the sort of curly 70s Bruce Forsyth here. <laughs> and he is flouncing about everywhere. And it's wonderful. He's obviously, he's playing Richard Pratt which is a, a suitable yeah. name for him. Uh, yep. he's, a, he's a wine snob. He's a wine expert. Oh, and by the way, at the beginning, as Roald sort of uh, introduces the story, he mentions that he's got a cellar full of, what's it, 5,000 bottles of wine? Something like that. 5,000 bottles of wine, some of which are superb. <laughs> and he drinks a couple every night. Never done him any harm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it might have, Roald. I think it might have. But he does say that one has more fun being a wine lover in England than in any other country. Do they? No. I'm pretty sure that our parents' generation, or possibly their parents' generation, didn't drink wine in this country. People didn't drink wine up until about 1983, did they, really, in this country, in in the UK? No, absolutely not. It was something that Margot and Jerry would do, like a rather drinkable bottle of hock or something like that, but no. (laughs) Us normal people, no chance. But this episode, I suppose it's similar to the other two, has got themes or attitudes running through it that you just look at them now and go, oh my God, Mm -hmm. is that what people were really like? I mentioned the Great Switcheroo before, and I said I enjoyed it when I was younger, when I read it. It's, and, and, and it didn't shock, I don't know, at the time, what was the word? Mores were different back 
20, 30, 40 years ago, weren't they? And you kind of accept things back in the day, didn't you? And, and I would have watched this episode and not thought twice about some of the more questionable themes, if you like. But you watch it now and you think, oh, that's a bit, you know. Because, of course, in, in those days, because this would have been made, you know, filmed in like 1979. I'm, I'm not entirely sure when, when Roald Dahl wrote it, but presumably it was, it was well before mm, that. Yeah. It was still customary to ask a father for a daughter's hand in marriage. So that part of it is, at the time, wouldn't have been so surprising. It's just the way that he does it in this. But also it's, it's the fact that I don't know how old the character, the daughter, is meant to be. Mm. I mean, she's not drinking wine, she's drinking water. So I'm thinking, is she meant to be like 15 or something? I don't know. Yeah. In, in the short story, she's 18. Oh, is she? But in this, yeah, she looks about 14. Yes, she does. Which yeah. makes it even more uncomfortable. <laughs> and he's, Ron Moody will not pass for a 21-year-old, let's face it. <laughs> I don't think he ever could. <laughs> so for, for those who haven't read or seen it, the main points of this story are, as you said, Richard Pratt is this wine expert. He's very much in the, the mould of Jilly Goulden and Oz Clark, where he can take a sip of wine, pull up his face, and then kind of basically identify the grape, the region, etc. Everything about the wine just from that one sip, which I did see Gillian Alls do on Food and Drink once, and it's really impressive. But but he does this as his kind of, mm. that's his expertise. And he does it on a chat show, which I think is meant to be like uh, Anglia Today or something like that, the Norwich version of Nationwide. He's showing off, he's doing his Ponzi wine tasting face, all that kind of kind of stuff again, which makes him look even more like Bruce Forsyth. <laughs> <laughs> he's such a pretentious... I mean, he, he does it, it, he ramps it up at the dinner party later, but it's like, you know, he's just tossing out this crap, you know, it conjures up, you know, vineyards. It tastes like a hedgehog pushing a wheelbarrow full of persimmons or something like that, you know, it's all that kind of <laughs> rank rot that these wine snobs come out with. Have you ever seen the Terry and June episode where Terry becomes a wine taster? Probably. I've probably seen them all, but they all kind of move. He does a lot of that. He's sipping wine and kind of going, oh, it reminds me of a meadow where overhead a lark twitters. And he just does all of this stuff. <laughs> but then, of course, he forgets to spit it out and gets pissed and so Dennis turns up. <laughs> that does actually happen. <laughs> and, of course, so Dennis says, haven't had so much fun in years. And oh, it's all the promotion is yours. And it does end up beautifully, as a Terry and June episode should. But it's very much like that because he does refer to a wine as being, you know, a cheeky, cheeky fellow. And the, the whole introduction I gave to you at the start of this episode was something that he said about one of those wines yeah, that he's tasting. Absolutely. Which is just nonsense. But while that TV show's going on, there's a dinner party being prepared by Sybil and her daughter Louise, who's the, is she 14, is she 18? Mm -hmm. And he's on TV, so they turn it down, and, and he's turning up there for dinner, which Sybil is very excited about, but Louise isn't. Because she says quite openly to her mum, you know, I don't like the way he looks at me. He stares at me like I'm one of his clarets. I think mum says something like, oh, he's very good with clarets. Yeah. Rather than saying, so be, that's disgusting, we'll have a word. It would be very good with you. Just like, oh, yeah. God. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But they do then say that some Americans are coming to dinner. I'm always excited when I watch British television from the 70s or 80s when it's clear that an American character is going to be introduced because I always think, right, it's going to be either Shane Rimmer yep. or Bruce, Bruce Bower. Bower. <laughs> <laughs> Towers, or yeah. it's going to be... William Hootkins, who indeed it was it is. this week. Um, and William Hootkins, I always associate with the character who shouts great booze up from that episode of Blackadder. Oh, God! All I think when I see him is top men from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, yes. 
Yeah. I think he's in Star Wars as well, but yeah, I don't want to talk about that. But yeah, I forgot he's great booze up. (laughs) (laughs) Which is perfect for this. Absolutely. But of course, the suggestion that some Americans are coming to dinner around about this sort of era would kind of mean, oh, there's going to be some vulgar people coming. Mm. Because mm-hmm. that's American is shorthand in, in these sort of things for Volga, which I think is interesting uh, because it does play in very nicely with the title because they are by a mile the least vulgar people at the table. Mm. And so that word taste comes in very nicely there because nobody has any. That's very true. That's very true. And so while all this is going on, Daddy, Michael, he's in the study very carefully opening a bottle of wine and, and letting it breathe or whatever it is you do with wine. And he's next to the green filing cabinet. I don't know why that's important, but apparently it is. <laughs> it's um, Chekhov's green filing cabinet. It certainly is. <laughs> Can you see my notes I've actually written? Have you? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we saw something. And as a lover of this sort of period of TV, which I, I believe you are as well, we go back to the TV studio where Ron Moody's leaving and we get a glimpse of something that I absolutely mm. love. Mm. And that's that rolling machine for the end credits. Yes. There's like this black roll with names on. I just thought that's brilliant. That's how they used to do it. I was watching that and, and I thought the guys that roll the credits is that their job? Is that all they do? Is that all they get paid to do? Is they stand roll? there doing that. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those at the end of the movie credits. You like a clapper loader or something like that. You think that's all they do? They just load that clapper and that's yeah. it. <laughs> and that's it. That's their job. You wonder whether there's roller. Is that what they call the roller people? Roller men who are considered top of the game. The, Creme de la creme. Or like a high roller. Yeah, they've got, they've got a particular <laughs> style of rolling that just sets them apart from the rest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, I'm sure it's just filler and, and won't be relevant later on, but while Pratt's leaving the TV studio, he makes some comment that he, he's always leaving his reading glasses everywhere. Mm. That's not going to be relevant later on. It's going to be as relevant as the green file. I didn't pick up on that, actually. I didn't pick up on that. One of the runners comes in and goes, oh, you've left your glasses, and he kind of goes, oh, I'm, I'm always leaving them behind. But it's not signposted. It's only on the second watch that I noticed that he'd said that. So yeah. for, for something as occasionally unsubtle as Tales of the Unexpected, I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was nicely just dropped in there. Mm-hmm. And we've spoiled it now by mentioning it, obviously, but never mind. So then we're at the dinner party. The Americans are there. And Mike, Daddy, he's telling them about this regular bet that he has with Richard Pratt, which is basically that he'll give Pratt a mystery bottle of wine. He has to do his Jilly and Oz trick and guess where it's from and what it is and what year it is. And if he gets it right, he gives him a crate of wine. But tonight he believes he's got one that's going to really fool him. I mean, he's set up as being a total asshole even before he gets to the dinner party, isn't he? He's set, I mean, we've seen him already, but even before we get to the dinner party, I've written wine snobs are assholes. Yep. I've written sociopath, um, <laughs> pompous git, and twat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but he, he proves his twatish pomposity when he arrives at the dinner party. Louise goes to let him in. And the first thing he does, he says, oh, he, he's got a gift for her. And it's a small sort of wrapped gift. And first of all, it looks like a big bar of fruit and nut. But sadly, it's not. <laughs> he's given her a gift of his new book. Yes. Great post-war vintages. 
And he's very, very pleased that he's given this to her. He's inscribed it with a little dedication to her as well, which I can't remember what he said, but it's really creepy. Mm. And he's sort of drooling over her like, like a dog over a treat. To my dearest Louise, I want to have sex with you. I think, I think that was it. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not prepared to wait. <laughs> it's awful, isn't it? It's so bad. <laughs> and then Michael's, Michael Daddy is doing some more gloating that he won't guess the wine. He's being really, really sort of insistent on this. He sort of says, you know, I, I've put it in just the right place, which is, as he says, the green filing cabinet is the perfect place to store wine. And I thought, well, if he wanted to make it more difficult, he should have put it in the fridge or in the earring cupboard, mm. put it somewhere where it's not suitable. He's going to have a much more difficult job identifying the wine. Because later on he goes, oh, it's a, it's a wonderful wine that, that you won't identify. He should have given him, like, I don't know, Blue Nun or, <laughs> I don't know. Umbongo or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if he'd given him Umbongo, he'd go, oh, hints of apricot, guava, mango. A vineyard in the Congo, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, that would have been all right. That would have been good if he'd just given him some old crap. Yeah. Yeah, some, some ties there with a bit of vodka in it or something. <laughs> That'll fool him. But no, he's chosen a good wine, sadly. Um, but then he goes out of the room to rinse his mouth out with soda water. And again, this does become crucial later on, but it's just quite subtly done again. It is, yeah, it is. We'll get to it, but I've got false memory of this episode, of how it ends, okay. you see. I was expecting a different ending, okay? I wasn't alert to it, anything like him leaving the room. When this is over, I'd love to know what you thought was going to happen at the end. That'd be fascinating. Yeah, I'll tell you, yeah. And then they're having the dinner, and it is just some wine bores, you know, wanging on about how barbaric it is to serve different wines at different times and all this absolute nonsense. Mm. Perhaps they're telling some mildly racist anecdote about how certain Americans pronounce bananas and all this sort of stuff. It's really, really uncomfortable. And they're not overly impressed by that. And like I said, it's kind of interesting to have the Americans as not the uncouth ones in a situation mm. like this. Mm. because they're normally brought in with their checkered jackets and their... Like that Harry Enfield Americans go to breakfast thing. That's good. Yes. You know, they're, yes. they're normally portrayed as like that. Yes. So it's nice that they're the goodies in this. <laughs> but then it's time for the bet. And again, Michael is, is very, very confident that he's going to win. So Pratt says to him, well, why don't we raise the stakes? And sort of glances rather horribly at Louise. And so they keep up in the ante. They go, well, 50 cases of wine, £10,000. Then Michael goes, well, I'll tell you what, we'll bet anything you like. And so Pratt says, well, if I win, I want to marry your daughter, your 14-year-old daughter. Mm. Which you kind of expect that, well, I think the father at first just thinks it's a joke, doesn't he? Yeah, they both do. Sybil starts laughing and he says, well, I'm not joking. And so he, he kind of insists that, you know, it, it's serious. When, when they realise that he is serious, Michael says no but not for the reasons that, that you or I would say no, which was, you know, you filthy pervert, get out of my house, Forsyth. He doesn't say that at all. His reason for not doing it is because Pratt doesn't have his own daughter that he can marry off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but instead... He says, well, yeah, you're absolutely right. So tell you what, you can have both my houses. Yes, both his houses, yeah. 
surely to God, any sensible person in the scenario would realise immediately something's afoot, something's up here, because Absolutely. you're going to bet your two houses. If you lose the bet, you're homeless for a start. I know this is fiction. I know it's not real. But you'd immediately think the stakes are far too high. Something's fishy here. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. But no, the father goes along with it and persuades his daughter and basically says, look, you can have the houses. Yeah, absolutely. This guy, Mike, is so confident that he's going to win. He's not listening to any sort of reasonable argument or negotiation. Not even thinking that, as you said, Pratt is clearly got something up his sleeve. Yeah, and, and then we have the actual wine tasting sequence, which seems to go on for about 35 minutes, I think. It's, yeah, it's... If, if there was an ad break in the middle, this, this is the majority of what happens after the ad break. It drags on a little bit. Yes. He does this thing with a white hanky. He does the smell. He Again, he does the, the piss face. He does a funny face when he takes a drink of it. And then he does this thing, <laughs> yeah. almost like a, a, this Hannibal Lecter-style thing where he he sort of performs an act on the wine in the glass he with does. his tongue. He does. It's brilliant. <laughs> I think if I had the ability, I would turn into some sort of animated gif. Because <laughs> I think it's, it's like the Ainsley Harriet one, <laughs> where he goes spicy. <laughs> It's just horrible. <laughs> it is. It's, but... It's horrible. And she, you know, Louise, who's unfortunately sitting next to him, just looks absolutely disgusted, doesn't she, by the man. Yep. If this is his attempt at wooing her, he's, he's not making a decent fist of it, is he? Really? <laughs> it's revolting. But it seems to work, because he then does a very, very long and detailed deduction Mm. of where the wine is from. he It's almost like Sherlock Holmes in its methods of deduction. He cuts out various villages and, oh, no, too big, no, too obvious. But he, he does manage to work out, just from that little sip and other actions, the year, the region, the village, the vineyard, what colour underpants the vintner was wearing <laughs> on the day that it was bottled. He does the whole thing. And then he asked Michael, am I right? And Michael, goes, and I bet you've written Chris Tarrant in your notes at this stage. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. That was, that, that was a surprise. Well, he predated Tarrant by like 20 years because Michael does say, is that your final answer? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brilliant. And of course he is correct. And again, rather than say, like, bet off, this isn't going to happen. If you ever thought it was going to happen, you're sorely mistaken. He just says, well, can we have a quiet chat about this old boy? As if they're trying to sort out Louise's future. Yeah. So she naturally storms off, presumably to, you know, pack her clothes, her Jackie comics, her teddy bears, that kind of thing. <laughs> her school uniform. No, it's, not, you know, it's terrible, isn't it? It's awful. It's really bad. Um, <laughs> but then a, a character appears who's only been in it briefly, which is Mrs. Adams, the cook. Mm. The very sour-faced cook who turns up to ask people to taste her horseradish and then disappears again. <laughs> yeah. And she gives Richard Pratt his reading glasses. Mm. Because as we know, he's always leaving them around everywhere. And she says to him in a, in a very sort of Cluedo manner that he left them in the study on top of the green filing cabinet. She knows this because she saw him go in there earlier with the soda siphon. Mm. <laughs> so the game is up. The cheat but all we see, the episode ends with the father, what's his name, Michael. You think at first he's, he's going to brain him with the, the wine bottle. Yeah. He just ends up pouring the rest of it out onto his head. Just tips it on his head. Yeah. This should have been a kind of a final, like an end credit scene where Richard Pratt at the proctologist, where he's just trying to get a bottle of wine removed. <laughs> 
Like most Tales of the Unexpected episodes, it ends very, very quickly. So it ends with a bottle of red wine being poured all over Richard Pratt's head. The end. Yeah, right. So here's the thing. So I remembered this episode fairly well, I thought. But my memory was that the twist was that the daughter, Louise, who hated Richard, Mm. had gone into the study before the meal and swapped the expensive bottle of wine with just a cheap bottle of 4 99 Tesco's own or whatever, you know what I mean? Ah. Because it's obviously got the napkin wrapped around it so you can't see the label. Yes. And I thought that she'd swapped it with just some cheap wine and that was the twist, if you know what ah. I mean. To see if he was just a fraud or not, yeah. Yeah, but obviously that's not. I think the way it ends is better. Roald Dahl would have dismissed my ending as being um, cheap and uh, obvious. But... <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> it's still a good ending. I like that. That's good. Mm. So I, I will ask, as as we like to do. Obviously, this was your choice. So yes, do you think that taste was still any good? Yes, I do. I really enjoyed it. Of the three that we've watched, well, no, 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 no. I'm not going to say. I really enjoyed it. Mm. Yes. That's good. I'm the same. I thought it was a nicely plotted episode. I didn't really see the ending coming. Like you said, you knew there's something afoot, but couldn't quite work out what it was. It's only on a second viewing when you see those little flags placed mm. about his reading glasses and the green filing cabinet. It's not as obvious as, as some of the other ones that we've watched, mm. where you can you can just see it coming a mile off. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it really helps in this that Ron Moody is amazing. He is so good in this. Just hams it up like crazy and really clearly enjoys himself. And it's just very, very funny because of that. Because the subject matter, like we've said, is appalling. Who else could have played that role, do you think, at that time? Recasting, who else could have played that, do you think? I'm just trying to think. Somebody who could act as pompous as that. Um, God, I don't know. I was thinking about this and I thought Denim Elliott would have been good. Ah, yeah, that's a good choice, actually. Because he toes that line, Denim Elliott, of playing characters who are either quite respectable, but he can also be play seedy characters and... Uh, Characters mm. are on the make, and um, like the character he played, I think is at the Rising Damp movie. <laughs> he played. Oh, Seymour, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a good point because I always see Denim Elliott as being slightly downtrodden and slightly worldly worn. But you're right in in things like Rising Damp, he's absolute schemer. Yeah. Well, if you read IMDb, there's always IMDb trivia saying other actors considered for this part were Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger, <laughs> yeah, Sylvester Stallone. Right. <laughs> so I wonder if. <laughs> Imagine Sylvester Stallone. (laughs) Shortening going, a very naughty boy, a cheeky wine. I'm not joking. (laughs) He wouldn't have been able to do that glass thing, his mouth's too big. Yeah. We'll move on to the second ones. I would sort of say that neither Rob or I chose any of these. Our well was sort of running a little bit dry. This is our fifth Tales of the Unexpected special. Mm. So while we were walking the dog, I asked my wife just to choose a couple of episodes. Okay. So the next two that we're, we're reviewing, she just went, oh, what about that one? I remember that. And so she's just picked a couple... And so we're going on her word 
Okay. So, first one that was chosen by Jessica Webb is from 1980 again, Fat Chance. In the bad old days, when India was full of millionaire Maharajas, these fellows used to bump off their wives with astonishing frequency. Oddly, they all used the same method, and very royal and Maharaja-ish it was. Not for them a coarse bash on the head or a bloody running through with a sword or a slashing of the throat. They used tiger's whiskers. A Maharaja intent upon disposing of his wife would first go out and shoot a tiger. He would then cut off its whiskers. These whiskers, which were as sharp and spiky as slivers of glass, would be chopped up into small pieces and sprinkled on the Maharani's curry at dinner. When eaten, they would perforate the lining of her intestine and kill her off within two days. In other countries, tiger's whiskers are rather hard to come by, so we husbands have to use other, less refined methods, as you will see in a moment. Yep. Is this one that you remember from first time around? It's not, and it's, um, I noticed obviously it's not a Roald Dahl story either. No, it's Robert Block. The writer of, amongst other things, The Psycho, Mm. and also Asylum, which we reviewed on here. The Amicus production of Asylum, which we reviewed a couple of years back. Which I enjoyed. I enjoyed your take on it, and I enjoyed the film as well. It is a good film. Mm. And the reason I bring that up is, obviously, there's the Jeffrey Baldon connection. Because he plays the most frightening man in the world in Asylum. (laughs) And the most (laughs) insignificant character in Tales of the Unexpected in this episode. He's kind of just there for for Jeffrey Baldon value, I think. I think there's value in someone's and I'm not going to do it, but someone should start a Jeffrey Bowden podcast because he's been in so many films and TV shows. You could just, you know, just... Absolutely. Unlimited scope. It is a niche topic, but <laughs> people like us could probably listen to it. I certainly would. Yeah, I haven't checked. There may already be one out there. It wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> if not, we should get onto it. Yeah. I do vaguely remember this one when it first came out. If this came out in 1980, I would have been nine years old. Mm. And this is one of the TV shows that I remember being allowed to stay up to watch. And I do have sort of vague memories of first time round of of this thing with a box of chocolates and and that kind of thing. And and being sort of, oh, that's a bit unexpected at the end when the event happens. Of course, I've seen it on DVD a couple of times. But watching it again, interesting cast. A couple of people who later on in life have become slightly more famous. Mm -hmm. In particular, this one, Miriam Margulies. Indeed. Who is playing... Mary is the allegedly fat wife in this. I just thought, actually, interestingly, Miriam Margulies, who also appeared in that episode of Blackadder with William Hootkins. She did! As, as Lady Whiteadder. <laughs> oh, my God! <laughs> this is a Blackadder beer special, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing! <laughs> Was Richard Green in beer? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah, so, so this one also features, as we said, Jeffrey Beldon plays a doctor in this. There's also John Castle, whose face I recognised, but I couldn't really mm. place from what. I had a look, and it's it's the usual stuff, you know, Morse, mm. Lovejoy, peak practice, that kind of thing. Yes. So he's playing John Burge, the husband of Mary. He's a pharmacist. It's clear that he's utterly disgusted by the appearance of his wife, Mary. Uh, this is one of the issues I've got with it. <laughs> Yes, so his wife, I mean, at one point he calls her a fat, fat, fat pig. Yes, um, yes. But she, apparently, now, did I hear this right? Did he refer to her weighing something like 11 stone? Yes, nothing, eh? You know, that's me putting one foot on the scales. <laughs> <laughs> I was that when I was about 12. 
I was just thinking, back in 1980, was fat considered something different? The attitude to obesity in this is horrendous. She'd be considered like a jock now, wouldn't she? Being that size. <laughs> <laughs> but even though it's not written by Roald Dahl, it does have the fireside intro. And I think this is possibly the most unpleasant of the Roald Dahl fireside intros. Because first of all, he talks about pre-colonial India as being the bad old days, which isn't a nice way to start it. No. And, and by the way, you can clearly see him reading the autocue. Of course. It's like Desmond Llewell in his later films, just <laughs> reading over the shoulder. <laughs> uh, but he goes on to tell an amusing, in other words, absolutely horrifying story of, of when the Maharajas want to bump off their wives. They go out and shoot a tiger and use the whiskers and poison their curry. <laughs> horrible, horrible stuff. But he, of course he finishes it by saying, we husbands have to use other less refined methods when we want to murder our partners. Have fun, enjoy this. <laughs> it's just so grim. Yes, it starts where it intends to go on, really, doesn't it? Yeah, and, um, yeah. Do you know where this was filmed? Because it looks like looks to me like Ilfracombe. I looked it up and it's Ailsham in Norfolk. Ah, so it's not yeah. even down the road from Ilfracombe then. Okay. No, <laughs> Tells the Unexpected was made by, by Anglia TV. Oh, of course. So, so the yes, majority of, of them were filmed in these, these lovely, quaint little English villages, which are either in Norfolk or Cambridgeshire. Or Lincolnshire, they're all in that kind of area. There's a few that where Ely Cathedral is used, most famously flypaper. One thing I picked up, by the way, in this episode, it's very apparent, is they're using VT for the whole thing. So, the, yeah. So it used to be that you'd have VT for in, interior scenes and then film for outside. And I guess when they started using VT for exterior scenes and shots, they must have thought, wow, this is the future, you know? But it looks absolutely, it, it doesn't yeah. look very good, does it? Through modern eyes. No, it doesn't, actually. It, it, I, I can't really explain why. Um, uh, but, but you're right, using like VT or whatever, it's what we used to call when we were kids, inside and outside cameras. Yes. Because I didn't know about words like VT, obviously. Can I tell you a quick story? The story about Coronation Street. There was a, f- a strike, film crew strike, in 1970, I want to say. But it was around the time that they were transitioning from black and white to, to colour, TV. Mm-hmm. It meant that there was a delay of a few months of filming of Coronation Street, something like that anyway. Yeah, yeah. But they'd filmed a bunch of exterior scenes in black and white, and then there was a sort of few months hiatus, if you like, and then they came back and started filming interior scenes for these stories using colour VT, okay? Oh. But what it meant was that there was a few episodes of Coronation Street that subsequently were aired, where if a character went outside, it suddenly swapped from colour to black and white. Wow. It's like the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> it's this amazing artistic decision. That's that's superb. <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> they should do they should carry on with that. I think that's great. Yeah. <laughs> so, so as far as Fat Chance goes, the pharmacist, John Burge, he's in an affair with Francis the solicitor, played by Sheila Gish. Mm-hmm. Always amuses me, her her real name is Sheila Gash, and that always makes me laugh. <laughs> That's not a joke. That's real. <laughs> Could it be worse? Could it be sh- sh- Sheila Gush? <laughs> I imagine equity had a hand in that. Yeah. <laughs> Famously married to Dennis Lawson. Oh, um, you were McGregor's uncle. 
Ewan McGregor's uncle, yes, that's right. Who I remember from Kit Curran's radio Kit show. Kit Curran's radio show, absolutely. See, and I'm going to diverge now as well. I, I once saw a, a play directed by Dennis Lawson, Little Malcolm and His Struggle Against the Eunuchs, okay, uh, yes. which had Ewan McGregor in it. Oh, nepotism. Nice little role for the nephew, yeah, absolutely. It's a good play, it's a good play. Joe Dateen was in it as well, son of John Dateen. Okay. If we're talking about nepotism. Yes, John's having an affair with Francis because he is disgusted by the normally sized Mary, Miriam mm-hmm. Margulies. While at the same time, he seems to be trying to blackmail Jeffrey Baildon, Dr. Applegate, because Jeffrey Baildon is a drug addict. Yeah. And John has been doing the old switch. He's been taking out sort of one or two tranquilizers from his prescriptions and selling them to the doctor. The attitude to Mary's obesity is basically whenever we see her, she's just stuffing chocolates in her face. She's sitting down watching TV. The only thing that disturbed me about that is the way that she eats her chocolates. She doesn't do it like a real person does. She actually bites it in half. Mm. If you've got like Quality Street or whatever, no. you just shove it in whole. Yeah. It's like if you took a crisp and bit it in half. It just no. Nobody does it. It's, it's like the director thought, okay, we need to signify that this person is a fat person. What do fat people do? Oh, they just sit around eating chocolates all day. It was quite kind of a lazy shorthand. Absolutely. By the way, when she's not stuffing a face full of chocolates, she's shaving her legs at the, at the breakfast table. <laughs> Which is much more sickening than somebody eating chocolate. She's using his electric razor <laughs> on the kitchen table. <laughs> you never saw Victor Kayam talk about that, did you? <laughs> There's also, at the same time, uh, John and Francis. The, the way that they can sort of continue their affair with nobody noticing is they're both in the local Amdram. They're putting on a play. These days, if this was made, the play would have some sort of significance on it. They'd be doing like Macbeth yeah. and she'd be playing Lady Macbeth or something yeah. like that. But no, it's, it's just like a, a light-hearted, frothy play of no significance whatsoever. Drawing room comedy kind of thing. It is drawing room comedy, yeah. absolutely. That's the way that they can get away with it. Frances comes up with a plan. She says, well, you're a pharmacist. I'm a lawyer. Which sounds like the tagline of some sort of new ITV <laughs> nine o'clock... <laughs> A couple who solve murders she's, in this spare time. She's a crooked lawyer. He's a murderous pharmacist. Yeah. They are. John and Francis. Could be the latest Rosemary in time. It could be amazing. <laughs> but of course, what she is suggesting is Moida. Have we pointed out, by the way, that she's not only having an affair with Miriam Margulies' husband, but she's also Miriam Margulies' best friend? She is. I'd forgotten that. Yeah. Yeah, what mm. a swine. So John kind of thinks, well... Yeah, we could try and work something out. So she says, well, if you're a pharmacist, you could poison her. Obviously, I'm a solicitor, so I can sort out the legal side of things. Now, all we need is a doctor who's able to do something with the death certificate. And of course, then John says, well, you know, I've got one of those in my pocket. I can blackmail him. That's fine. He sets the ball rolling. He suggests to Dr. Applegate that maybe he should become her doctor. And so Francis... Even though she's the solicitor and she could sort out the issues as far as things like probate goes, she goes, right, I'm off to America then, (laughs) where I won't be able to help. Yes, and but I'll come back if you successfully knock off your old woman, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's ludicrous. It is ludicrous. But the way she says it again is is really horrible. She says, Mm. and I had to write it down, she says, they kill pigs by the thousand every day. Haven't you got the nerve to get rid of just one? Mm. Terrible. It's really, really horrible. But he says he's got a plan, but it's best you don't know about it. I've just noticed, by the way, my notes here, because when I first saw Sheila Gish, um, <laughs> I, I wasn't sure what the character name was. She looked a bit like Liz Truss, so I just referred to her in my notes as Truss. 
um, which is quite, you know, she's, she's, got, she's about as classy as Liz Truss, this character, isn't she? They, they kill pigs by the thousand every day at pork markets, is what she probably would have said. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, so then we see John's plan. Late night at the pharmacy, John's got a box of chocolates and he injects one of the chocolates with something and then does a very good job of sort of melting over the injection hole, which I thought was quite classy. I, thought, I enjoyed that bit. It's a nice bit of detail. I thought, but, but I also thought, well, it, surely it would have been better to stick the needle in, in the underside of the chocolate. If you pick a chocolate out of a box, you don't look at the bottom of it, do you? You know what I mean? <laughs> but I'm overthinking that, maybe. Maybe he thought it would leak out. Mm, possibly. So obviously then, clearly his plan is he's going to poison his wife by giving her a very, very much like Forrest Gump's mum. She doesn't know what she's going to get, which in this case is some poison. <laughs> Death is like a box of chocolates. <laughs> so, so we're back at home and he gives her the box of chocolates. And because she's already stuffing her face with, I don't know, barley sugars or something, she says she'll save them until tomorrow. So he says, oh, that's fine. What's another day? And then the next day, he's very excited coming home from work. He sort of races home. He gets in. It's looking good because the table hasn't been cleared. And, you know, the Remington 2000 is still on the kitchen table. <laughs> Surrounded by various detritus. He goes into the living room and she's stretched out on the living room chair. It looks like it's worked. You know, she's not moving. Her eyes are closed. So again, rather than sort of check her pulse or anything, he goes in with the mirror. Or just say, Mary. Mary. <laughs> you all right? <laughs> um, so he's there with the mirror right up to her face. And of course, her eyes pop open because she was just sleeping. And then she tells him, and this is kind of nice, because again, that tiny little morsel of, I want you to be her doctor, Jeffrey bailed on. She says, oh, it was great that Dr. Applegate has become my doctor because he's spoken to me about my eating. Uh, and because of him, I've given up the biscuits, the marron glacé and the cake. All I want to do now is eat healthier. So I'm not going to eat those chocolates. It's just a matter of will. And so he says, well, well what happened to those chocolates? You did eat them, didn't you? And she says, of course, no. Francis popped around to say goodbye on her way to America. So I gave them to her as a going away gift. And she'll be tucking into them over the Atlantic right now. Mm. Mm. Close up of John's face doing that sort of. Oh, <laughs> oh no, what have I done? As she's banging on about lettuce and cottage cheese. He's thinking, yes. oh my God. Yeah, he's now obviously stuck with her and they're not even going to be enjoying nice food. There's no more cake. It's all going to no. be like carrots and stuff. So it's a double whammy. <laughs> <laughs> and she's still going to be shaving her legs at the breakfast table. Because... <laughs> it is a very satisfying ending, I think. Yes. Did you enjoy this one? I did enjoy it. Not as much as taste. That's fair. I love Miriam Margulies and everything. She didn't have a lot to do, though, did she, really? She wasn't given a lot to do. What's the name? Is it John Castle, did you say, the actor? John Castle, yes. He's very unlikable, just a bit bland. Yeah. But a nice little twist. Sometimes some of these, the twist isn't kind of satisfying or, if you pardon the pun, delicious. But in this one it really is, because they are clearly awful people. Mm. And they get what's coming to them, and I think that's, it's a good ending. What's the coda to this? Is that coda? Is that the word? What's the outcome of this? So she, let's assume that Francis dies on a plane. Yes. Do they trace it back to the old man or what? Ooh, that's interesting, actually. I never thought that far ahead, but that does make sense. Where did she get the chocolates? They were Mm. given to her by Miriam Margulies, who was given to them by her husband, the pharmacist. So for all intents and purposes, it could look like he's trying to kill Francis. By the way, Miriam Margulies, 
she did the vo- the voice of the sexy rabbit on those um, Cadbury's caramel adverts. Yes, she did. Yeah, sexy chocolate. Sexy chocolate. <laughs> Maybe that's how they got together in the first place. She was eating chocolate and she did her rabbit voice. <laughs> you kind of like that. So yeah, I did watch this with my wife and we did enjoy it very much again, just mainly because of that ending. Like I said, I think the attitudes towards a person's size have changed somewhat. For starters, there's nothing on her. If they wanted someone who was really large, they could have cast the act of Willoughby Goddard and put a, put a wig on him or something. <laughs> Some false boobs. Um. <laughs> just get Bella Emberg in to do it or something like that. That would be good. <laughs> oh, that's another thing, right? Casting of this episode. So did they contact Miriam Margley's agent and say, <laughs> we want you to play a character who's referred to throughout as a fat pig? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, Miriam, just, just take the role. Don't read the script. Just, just take the role. I wonder that whenever anyone is kind of like body shamed and, and they go to their agent and go, right, we want someone hideous looking, please. <laughs> Mind you saying that, I've seen enough of Miriam Margulies in terms of interviews and whatnot and heard her on talk, you know, interview talk, talk shows and things. She's a game old gal and she's the oh, first yeah. to make fun of herself and her size and everything. So I'm sure she wouldn't flinch. No, but for other actors who may not have a, as thick a skin as Miriam, mm. it's quite a depressing career if that's <laughs> all they're looking for. Shall we crack on um, yes. with the final episode, again chosen by, by my wife, which goes almost back to the start of Tales of the Unexpected. This was the second ever episode, back to 1979, which mm-hmm. is Mrs. Bixby and the Colonel's Coat. This is a play about a very expensive mink coat. The original story is quite short, but I'm such a ridiculously slow writer that it took me something like five months to get the thing finished, which is more than 600 working hours. That probably sounds a bit silly to you, but in trying to work the plot out properly, I took so many wrong turnings and went up so many blind alleys, I nearly went crazy. Don't forget a short story writer's working in miniature and he can't afford to splash his paint all over the canvas. He has to be extremely precise. I find it very difficult. Anyway, see what you think of it. Is this one you're familiar with? Yeah, I've read the story and I'm sure I've seen this one. I knew what was going to happen, basically. Did you read it in sort of homework for this, or was it something you'd read? Yes, previously? I did, actually. I was going to read Taste as well, but I um, couldn't be bothered. Fair enough. Um, but I read, I read Mrs Bixby in the Colonel's Coat, and it was fairly faithful, this adaptation. Mm-hmm. I believe that one of the major differences is the story actually set in America. Yes. A lot of his stories are actually set in America. The Great Switcheroo, I mentioned earlier, that's set in America. Oh, okay, okay. In, I think in about 1960, Hitchcock directed a version yes. of this. Uh, which I did watch. Well, I didn't. So what was that like? It's very good, mainly because it benefits from having a really good director. One of the, the major differences, and I think one of the faults in this, which we will get to, is the scene where Mrs. Bixby has the dilemma about what to do with the coat. Obviously, in this, she goes on a great monologue and talks to herself about, but what can I do? I must have it. But I can't say Aunt Maud bought it for me. In the Hitchcock version... She just touches the coat. You see her thinking, and that's it. You've worked out exactly what the dilemma is. And that mm. just comes from his 
obviously better direction. Yeah. I suppose the other differences are the way that the husband is treated. Obviously, in this, it's Michael Horden, and he's very, very funny. In the American version, the Hitchcock version, he's a much younger man. He's not seen as like a clumsy buffoon, you know, quite a young, handsome man. Mm. And they do actually seem to like each other. There's a bit of passion between them. They have like a, a romantic kiss goodbye when she goes away. So it makes the whole dynamic slightly different. It makes her feel a bit more wrong for doing what she does. Whereas obviously in, in this version, it's just because he's boring. She's bored. Well, they've got the whole Basil and Sybil separate beds thing going on. <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> it's such a British thing. I mean, even Eric and Ernie were sharing a bed at this point. You know, so it's, <laughs> It is kind of funny that they've got the separate bed. But this one, it's the same sort of plot. So the, the cast in this, we've got Julie Harris as Mrs. Bixby. Mm-hmm. Obviously known from The Haunting. The Haunting, yep. She's also in another quite good Tales of the Unexpected called The Way Up to Heaven. Okay. With a twist, spoilers folks, is that she traps her husband in a lift so he starves to death. (laughs) (laughs) Which is nice. He deserves it. He's not very nice. Do you think at the end of this she traps the young lady in the lift? Ah! (laughs) Mrs. Pulteney. She might do actually, yeah. (laughs) She might. (laughs) So we also have Michael Horden playing her husband Cyril who's being as Michael Hordeny as you can imagine. <laughs> I can't remember a time I wasn't aware of Michael Horden. A bit like the Queen, God bless her. And Michael Horden's always been a constant presence in my life. And I wonder whether that's because he was the voice of... Well, he did Paddington, didn't he? Mm. Yes, the, he did, yeah. The 70s. But he almost always plays officious, slightly stuffy, sort of upper-class or officer-class characters, doesn't he? In films. And yeah, yeah. Whatnot. Occasionally he might play a slightly down-at-heel character, like in um, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, something like that. But generally speaking, he's, you know, he's, a, he's in every British war movie that was ever made you know, <laughs> between 1948 <laughs> and 1980, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. But in this, he plays Cyril, her husband, and you can kind of tell that it's not the most passionate of relationships. As you said, they've got separate beds. When they do both lay down to go to sleep, he kind of goes darling and you think oh is he gonna you know but he just goes have you brushed your teeth which again could be a code for something else but here's the thing i didn't realize he was a dentist i don't think it's made clear that he's a dentist at first is it when we first no see them so when he said that line i thought oh is that what have they just done is that a preamble (laughs) to saying like do you want to do you want to jump into into my my bed kind of thing could potentially be a post Amble, really, couldn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But no, it's not. He really does want to know if she's cleaned her teeth. And so she's going away to see old Aunt Maud. Again, there's a lot of exposition in this. They're talking about 80-year-old Aunt Maud and the only family she's got. She doesn't have a penny to her name, um, so I have to go and visit her every three months. So they're they're telling us a lot of stuff, but it is kind of justifying the, the setup. While she's telling him this, he's doing... I don't remind me of it like sort of like George and Mildred or something. You know, he's doing his exercises before going to bed in his pajamas, which is basically just sort of moving your elbows a couple of times <laughs> and then going to bed, <laughs> which which I enjoyed very much. <laughs> that's what passed for exercise in late nineteen seventies. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> just to put your arms up like that, and that's about it. That's all you do. <laughs> But um, the following morning, she sees him off at the door, so to speak. She says goodbye because he's off to work and she's going to see Aunt Maud. And up until this point, we've been listening to this kind of dreary piano score, which has been a little bit dull. 
But as soon as he's gone, the music changes to sexy sax. It is sexy sax, and you think, it does. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so something's up. What exactly is the relationship between this woman and Aunt Maud? You think, Jesus, <laughs> there's something going on because she lets her hair down, she puts the lipstick on, she puts a bit of scent on. She's mm-hmm. got a smile on her face, and the sexy sax is playing. So something's up. And then we cut to something which was really of its time, which is a fox hunt. Mm. A horrible, horrible fox hunt. There's a quick shot of a pack of hunting dogs all trying to get something. I just hope it's like a sausage or something like that, and, you know, not a fox. There's a film called The Bellstone Fox from 1973 or something like that. British film. Does this have Dennis Waterman in it? Yes. Oh, I've seen that, yeah. The only reason I mention it is, and I saw it once and it was um, quite a while ago, but the thing that sticks in my mind is that there's a scene where there's a fox hunt and they've got all these, what are they, beagles? What do they use? Well, let's say beagles. Hounds. Hounds. Fox hounds, yeah. And there's a scene where a train is passing and the pack of dogs are hit by the train. Oh, my okay. God. But it's a low-budget film from 1973, so you don't see, you know, <laughs> they don't actually murder these dogs. But what they do is you see the train go past and then you see these dogs being thrown up in the air. So it's like <laughs> it's like these people are crouching just below the camera, each holding a dog and then throwing them, <laughs> throwing them up in the air. Like the cat in Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> it's worth it just to watch that scene. I should do, because I, I do remember that film. Um, I don't remember that bit. The thing that I first thought of when I saw that scene with the dogs going in was a little darker, which was Omen 3, The Final Conflict. Oh, I've, not, I've not seen that. There, there's a fox hunting scene in that, which, which doesn't really end well, uh, either for the fox or some monks who are trying to murder Sam Neill. <laughs> they get eaten by dogs. <laughs> but then we see, on a horse, Robin Hood. Indeed. Richard, Richard Green. Green. A very old Richard Green. Who I associate not with Robin Hood because that was before our time, wasn't it? Let's face it. Oh, I hate people that say that, by the way. Oh, especially yeah. on quiz shows. Yeah, before I was born. Well, you know, you've heard of the Bible, haven't you? That's right. You've heard of the Queen. You've heard of the Beatles. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I associate Richard Green with, I always get this wrong, is it? It's either Tales from the Crypt or The Vault of Horror. He, he's the monkey's paw. Oh, sequence. wow. That's him. Mm. Oh, wow. Brilliant. Where he's in agony forever because he's being operated on forever, if you remember. Or he's being embalmed forever. That's it. Yeah, that's a memory that terrified me. God! Yeah. <laughs> in this, he's got the look of... Because um, I'm watching a lot of Donald Sinden in the 70s at the moment, for various reasons. <laughs> he's got the look of Donald Sinden in this. <laughs> he does. I was trying to work out who it was, but I thought it was like um, Ralph from Ted and Ralph, or... Oh, when yes. he's got his tweeds and his trilby on, he looks like one of the upper-class twits of the year. Yes. <laughs> but he's on a horse and he excuses himself and one of his hunting friends sort of goes oh yes and more is it you bachelors and as he rides off he does the most amazing oh you cheeky scoundrel face just looks at him and goes oh it's beautiful I, and that actor never worked again <laughs> no <laughs> so so back at the colonel's house he is getting ready for aunt maud i do the parentheses yeah. thing for Aunt Maud. So he, he puts on his best seduction gear, as we said, which is his tweeds and his trilby. And then before going out, he quickly puts away a framed photo of some young filly with her horse and replaces it 
with a framed photo of Mrs. Bixby, Julie Harris. Mm. So the pieces are sort of coming together a bit. And I don't know if you'd noticed, I'd struggled. I wasn't sure if Richard Green was trying to put on an Irish accent or not. I don't think so. No. Turns out he was, because the plane says Aer Lingus. Mm. So I think he's meant to be this Irish gent. But she gets off the plane and is met by Seamus, the chauffeur. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she is. So she was. And the colonel is in the back of the rolls. I know I've mentioned this before, but you know straight away in Tales of the Unexpected if people are having an affair because they say darling a lot. And that's exactly what they say. They say darling to each other. So you know they're up to something. Um, And he adds to the source by shouting (laughs) tally-ho, which I thought was super sexy. (laughs) And just in case there was any doubt, they do one of those long motionless for the camera snogs where they don't move their heads as the car drives away. I always think those just look ridiculous now through modern eyes, but I wonder watching it back then, you just thought, oh, that is incredibly passionate. Mm, Um, Not moving at all. (laughs) 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 But at least it would be okay for the colonel because we know she's brushed her teeth. So that's all right. (laughs) True. And then we're back at Cyril. We, we learned that because Cyril was talking about brushing his teeth. He is actually a dentist and he's tending to a patient. And his dental nurse, Miss Pulteney, does this poem to remind people how to brush their teeth. Oh, God, yes. I forgot about and that. And she says... Yeah. Um, What's the rule for brushing, Miss Pulteney? Ten strokes. That's the rule. Use the length of the brush to the full. Teeth have two sides, so it's outer and inner. Five minutes, that's all, and you'll end up a winner. Rinse, please. Very Val and Harvey Denton, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. It is. <laughs> Do you think she recites that to every patient? Every... Definitely, yeah. Especially with P.S. I am mental. <laughs> Dr. Bixby, he's a slightly sadistic dentist, it seems, because he just keeps drilling this guy. He who's... does like to drill, yeah. Mm. Which is interesting, because the Hitchcock version opens on about a three-minute tooth drilling scene. Just somebody having their tooth drilled for ages. And you can just tell that Hitchcock's loving it. It's almost (laughs) marathon man. It's sadism. It's horrible. A lot of similarities in temperament and uh, outlook between Hitchcock and Roald Dahl, I suppose. I think you're probably right. Yeah. Mm. They hated everything. Yeah. (laughs) But but Cyril then does say that he has to work late. And this is a common thing. He's working late because he's doing some inlays. Mm. <laughs> I bet he is. I bet he is. Speaking of which, we're back at the Colonel's bedroom. <laughs> he wakes up Mrs. Bixby with a, with a very romantic "Come along, me darling," which is what every woman wants to hear. I think if <laughs> you woken up, <laughs> it turns out they've been in that room for the whole weekend. Yeah, it must stink. It's. Just... <laughs> Do you think Seamus comes in periodically and changes the oh. bedding? <laughs> My God, yeah. <laughs> Poor Seamus. Yeah, someone's got to clean that up. But also, the Colonel's not a young man. This could end very badly. <laughs> well, they're both, you know, the, she's no young filly, is she? She's, she's Well, that's what I kind of, of like about it. They're both middle-aged, and you don't see that very often. Well, obviously, you said he put the photograph of a younger lady. A younger model, yes. Yeah. The implication, I suppose, is is she the is she the newer model, if you know what I mean? And, mm, um, yeah. And he's um, he's trading in the old model mm. for a younger model. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, these playboys, these bachelors. Mm, yes. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but he says that Seamus will drive her to the airport. He can't go because he's got important business to attend mm. to. Mm. I just thought, yeah, right. 
That's what I say at work when I can't be asked to join in like the group morning tea. So, sorry, I've got important yeah. business to do. Sorry. Yeah. So it's the most obvious no. Wordle. <laughs> <laughs> but but Seamus does drop her off and he gives her a huge box from the colonel. And we know it's a huge box because she says, ooh, what a huge box. Mm. While holding a huge box. Nice one. So she takes it into the labs to have a look at it, as you would. <laughs> which, which, to be fair, for a provincial Irish airport, they're very nice toilets. They've got these seats and makeup stations, and a toilet lady sat in the corner as well. Looking like the most 1970-ish lady I've ever seen. Yeah. She's what she's wearing. She's got the tabard, she's got the head thing on. Yes. <laughs> I thought she was great, but sadly she's uncredited on IMDb, so I'm not sure no. what else she's done. She, she may have gone into the realms of woman who urinates herself on threads. <laughs> <laughs> that level of notoriety. <laughs> yeah. But she opens the box in the toilets. There's a really horrible, gigantic mint coat, which she mm. obviously loves. And there's a note in there as well, where, again, we get voiceover from the colonel telling her that it's a parting gift. Just for personal reasons, he's not able to see her anymore. We know what that means. Mm-hmm. He's phasing in a new model. She looks conflicted. I think she's just so enamoured with the coat that she's not. Yes. she doesn't seem that bothered by the brush-off. No, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then, as you said, she monologues for five minutes about her dilemma because she's already made clear that, that Aunt Maud hasn't got any money, so there's no way she'd have afforded to give her this mink coat because it would have cost, I don't know. I have no idea how much mink coats cost. There must be thousands, surely. I've got no frame of reference, so I couldn't begin to speculate. No. But yeah, there's a lot of minks made that coat. Because they're quite small, aren't they? They're sort of ferrety sized. They're not big mm. creatures. And it's no. a big coat. So where can she say she got it from? But she must have the coat. She has to keep it. So on the taxi home, she sees a pawnbroker shop. So she comes up with a plan. She goes in and is served by Alan Carr's granddad. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a bit like Alan Card. Well, first of all, I thought it was Roy Skelton, the bloke who does Zippy. Yes. Uh, yes. But it isn't. Because <laughs> he's very, yeah, what you want, what you want. But sadly not. Um, she, of course, over-explains her dilemma. She says, oh, isn't it silly of me? I've gone and lost my purse. I just need money for a taxi home. The usual stuff that you don't really need to say. So she's clearly making it up. And he knows. He just wants to talk business. He's heard all this before. Yeah. She just wants £50 to keep the coat there until tomorrow and she'll come back and get it. So she's obviously got a plan in place. She, she says to leave all the details on the pawn ticket blank. And he sort of explains why that's a bad idea. If you lose the card, then anyone can claim it. I do really like this scene. I think the exchange between her and the pawnbroker is really funny. There's this bit where he almost breaks the fourth wall. She, he yeah. says, like, oh, yo, what do I need to put any details for? He practically looks at the camera and goes, <laughs> what for, she asks. And it's like Kenneth Williams saying it or something. I think it's really <laughs> lovely. I was thinking, right, I've never been in a pawn shop in my life. Um, no. And I don't know, is it customary for pawn shop proprietors to be arseholes to the customers? <laughs> is it? Is <laughs> yeah. that the well, natural? Well, they're a lower class of human being, as they allude to later. They're just there to rip you off. That's all pawnbrokers mm. are for. You're just going to get robbed. He's explaining everything about why it's a bad idea to leave the ticket blank. But, of course, she, she needs to leave it blank because she's got a plan in place. Yes. Because she's going to say that she found it and she can go back and go, oh, I've got this coat. It's a brilliant plan. It is. 
It is. Because she does say to him, well, if there's no description on the ticket, you could rip me off. You could just put anything in that box and say that that's what I brought in. Which at first I thought was a bit cheeky. That was for the benefit of the audience. It's a really nice bit of exposition about Mm. what's to come or what's not to come later. Mm. I think Mm -hmm. it's really nicely dropped in there. Yeah. So we're back at the Bixby. She's home from Aunt Maud's. um, And she sort of says, well, I think Aunt Maud's going to die soon, so I'm not going to bother going back to see her anymore. While he's mixing her a martini using a pipette. (laughs) She gets the ticket out and says, oh, I found this. It might be a lottery ticket. I don't know what it is. So he explains that it's a pawn ticket. Um, and because there's no description, it could be rather amusing. Um, so she's excited, thinking, oh, there must be something really good in there. But he says he'll go and claim it at the pawn shop. She can't go because she's a foreign woman. She's a woman. Not only is she a woman, she's also foreign. So she yes. can't go into the pawnbrokers. He does at one point, though, he says, you can come with me. And she says, oh, no. Obviously, if she goes on her own, that's fine. If she goes with him... He's going to recognise her. He's going he's to say, oh, I saw you yesterday. Yeah, that's right. Hello again. Yeah. Mm. And that's it. That's a, that's a scheme mm. ruined. So she agrees that he'll go by himself. And we see him come out of the pawnbrokers carrying that massive box. And of course, he calls her straight away and says, look, come to the surgery and see what it is. Because it, it is something fantastic. It's something you can wear. And she says, bearing in mind this was probably made in about 1979, and he's paid £50 for this. She says, is it a hat? I thought, what hat <laughs> would have cost 50 quid in 1979? Like screaming Lord Such's gold hat or the crown jewels or something. <laughs> Your first thought would be it's a necklace or something, some, some yeah, sort of jewellery. Yeah, it's jewellery. Yeah. They say, is it a watch and all this? Is it a hat? <laughs> is, it, is it a pair of socks? <laughs> is it a bag of crisps? Yes. <laughs> but... <laughs> But they are salt and vinegar, so they're worth it. Um, <laughs> so she, she races along to the dental surgery. Cyril gets her to close her eyes. And she's obviously really beside herself because she knows she's going to get this fur coat. She opens her eyes and it's not the coat. What it's meant to be is a mink stole. Yeah. But it really does look like someone's just run over a stray cat. It's this scraggly thing. Well, when I was a kid growing up in New Zealand on a farm, um, occasionally you would get um, possums caught on barbed wire oh um, jesus it looked kind of like the remains of something like that it's not nice um no so obviously because he's got this mink stole it's clear that she was right that that swine of a pawnbroker has ripped her off he's clearly taken the coat and just put some old tat in the box and he sort of puts the boot in by going well don't expect a christmas present this year <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Stay, stay classy. <laughs> so she is utterly dejected. But he says he's going to be home late again. Inlays. <laughs> so she heads for the lift. And the mad Miss Pulteney asks her to hold the door. And Miss Pulteney is wearing the mink coat. We all saw that coming. Oh, it's good though. It is. It is good. If we could only see what happened next, but she's got a bit of a conflict here or a problem because she can't admit that she knew that the mink coat was hers because that would obviously blow the gaff on her affair. But she now knows she does have the information that her husband's having an affair. So what does she do? Does she go home and poison some chocolates? (laughs) (laughs) Pulls a bottle of wine over his head. Who knows? That's why I think the plotting in this, I think, is really tight. Getting to the ending of she knows her husband's having an affair, but she can't do anything about it because that will give away her own infidelity. I Mm. think it's really good storytelling. 
Yeah. Roald Dahl clearly started with that and worked backwards. How do we get to that? Because he says in the introduction that it took him like 6,000 hours to write this and it <laughs> nearly drove him crazy because he went down so many blind alleys, etc. But again, you're, you're absolutely right. What happens next is she may need to think of a way to trap him because mm. she can't come out and go, I know. She has to sort of falsely work that out for herself and kind of catch them at it or whatever Yeah. when they're doing their inlays. Yeah. Did you enjoy this one? I did enjoy it very much. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm the same. I, I think out of the three, I think this is my favourite. There isn't much flab on it. There's not that much filler. And everything matters. There's a lot more going on than you give it credit for, which a lot of, a lot of these are. There's a lot of misdirection. But I think this one is, is really, really nicely done. I, I can understand why it's one of the first ones that they did. I slightly prefer taste, I think, just, mm-hmm. but that's purely just because of the performance of Ron Moody. Um, but this is definitely, this has got more of a twist to it, more of a neat ending to it. Yeah. Because the Ron Moody one is, is sort of played for comedy a little bit, particularly with the ending yes. where he just chucks wine on him or whatever. But this is, it, it's so neat and it's so yeah. enjoyable. I, of all three of these, I did enjoy all of them. And that doesn't normally happen. When we normally do two episodes, we find one that we love and one that we think is terrible. So it's great that we've managed to find three goods. We're on quite a roll here, actually. That's because you didn't choose them. That's a very good point. You chose wisely. You've got terrible taste in episodes. I, <laughs> <laughs> I clearly do. I'm going to get my wife to choose them all from now on. That's great. Mm. That's really good. So that's probably about it. Thank you for joining us. I Thank really, really enjoyed me. that. It's a shame that Rob couldn't be here, but um, hopefully he'll enjoy listening to it. Yep. It will speed him onto his recovery. Yes, absolutely. He will laugh himself better. <laughs> Let's hope. <laughs> So before we say goodnight, because here it is 10.25pm, is there anything that you'd like to plug? I do a podcast called Goon Pod, as the name implies. It is uh, about the goons. Not so much specifically about the goon show itself, but we do cover goon shows, but it's about Peter Sellers' films, Spike Milligan films, books, television programmes, even cover Harry Seacom, even Michael Benteen occasionally. It's generally speaking, I mean, you've heard some of them, Chris, it, it starts off talking about you know, the goons or Sellers or Milligan or whoever, and very often the, the conversation branches off and goes off into all tangents and we talk about old comedy in general and, and music. In fact, last week I was very lucky to uh, interview The Scaffold. Wow! Do you know The Scaffold? Absolutely, yeah. John Gorman. John Gorman, Roger McGough, Mike McGear. It did go well. It went very well. Okay, I'm very happy with it and that will be out in a couple of weeks. Now, the one thing I want to mention though... So we, we were recording via Zoom. Okay. Yep. Now, the guy who'd organised this call with the three of them, he said to me, OK, look, they're all great guys. John likes to talk. He, he bloody <laughs> does. He said, they're all great guys. He said, Mike McCartney, fantastic fella. He said, um, just one thing, try and avoid, unless he brings it up himself, try and avoid sort of mentioning his brother. Mm. Went, OK, fair enough. Now, my... Zoom avatar is the same as my Twitter profile image. <laughs> of course. You know Your avatar is? is Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> so I start the Zoom call. I'm there. I start it about two minutes early, if you know what I mean. And I'm just sort yeah. of dum-de-dum-de-dum, waiting, waiting, waiting. And I just sort of looked at the, the picture of Paul McCartney. I thought, shit. God. So I quickly changed it. To a picture of Barry Cryer, because <laughs> that was the first picture I came to. 
<laughs> and when Mike McCartney joined the call, he said, is that a picture of you, Tyler? <laughs> Cheeky bastard. Do I look like Barry Cryer? <laughs> That's a brilliant... I love that. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> but you can imagine it. You can imagine him joining the call. And the first thing he sees is this big picture of his brother. <laughs> that is real. So Dennis hates the Japanese. Make sure you don't invite <laughs> Mr. Yakimoto from next door for dinner. That's amazing. Mm. <laughs> okay, so before we go, we'll do a little bit of housekeeping. If you want to get in touch with us, we're on Twitter at StillAnyGoodPod, Instagram at StillAnyGood. We're also on Facebook. And if you want to email us, it's StillAnyGood at gmail.com. Okay, thanks again. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, that was really good entertainment. I thoroughly enjoyed that. And we'll get you back on again soon when Rob is better. Absolutely. I've had a wonderful time. Thank you very much. Thank you See so you much. Okay, it is. Time to say goodnight. Cheers, folks. Bye-bye. See you. Bye. He's just trying to get a bottle of wine removed. <laughs> just on that, and you can cut this bit out, I'm sure you will. Is still a known entity in New Zealand? The name does ring a bell, but I'm not sure from where. Rob, Rob will know this. And <laughs> there was this urban legend going around the schoolyards. I certainly <laughs> heard this story, that he'd been admitted to hospital, to A&E, with, uh, <laughs> sorry, you don't need to finish this sentence. I know where you're going with it. With a with a veg, jar <laughs> inserted in a place it oughtn't be. <laughs> oh my god! Now we've got some Vegemite in the cupboard. Those jars are huge. Allegedly, if he's still around. I mean, I think that's quite symbolic because obviously Vegemite, like Marmite, is something that some people really, really love to do and some people just can't stomach it. <laughs> oh, what a lovely story. <laughs>